Welcome everyone to the Gov Navigator Show, a government-focused program that won't make you seasick. We're the Gov Navigators. I'm Robert Shea. And I'm Adam Hughes. We hope to enlighten and enliven your week with news and insightful, entertaining guests, all on the topic of government management. Enjoy today's episode of Gov Navigators, brought to you by the creative geniuses behind the award-winning podcast, FedHeads. Welcome to another episode of the Gov Navigator Show. Robert, we, there's a lot of things going on. July is a busy time in Washington and the federal government, and this year is no exception. What's top of mind for you this week? Well, I didn't get nearly as much rest as I had hoped. And I also feel obligated to feature uh, a recent piece by our overlord. You know, the byline is July 4th, 2023. 108. Do you think he really wrote this, like released it? I think July he might 4th? have. I think he might have. Jason Miller makes note that federal agencies are estimated to spend about $217 billion between now and September 30th, about 31% of total contract spending for FY 2023. It's a lot of money. Right. And as I always said, you just need to walk around DC with a bucket, right? Because the money's falling. That's probably a bad way to characterize the federal acquisition system. It's certainly, it's much more rigid and than that description, but you're also not wrong. Jason ticks through a number of important acquisitions that are going on, not, to, not the least of which are Oasis and Alliant, but also acquisitions from FBI, IRS. It's really just the tip of the iceberg of things that folks ought to be paying attention to. Both in the agencies and among federal contractors, there's really an opportunity to capture a lot of important work that agencies will be doing in the next fiscal year. And some of the things that Jason details quite nicely are steps that agencies are taking now to plan for future acquisition vehicles. Some that are even two to three years down the road where there are RFIs out or the ability for contractors to weigh in to try to shape some of those vehicles. Some of these are replacements for ones that are expiring. Some of them are new, but uh, Jason does a great job of a rundown. You know, it, it's he probably could have a companion piece that's just a little checklist for contractors. Maybe that's something Gov Navigator should provide. We can get the intern on that this summer. Sure. Uh, you know. As we've been advising our clients, FY24, probably out of the gate, is going to be rocky. Prospect of tending resolutions, short or long-term, government shutdowns, that specter looms darkly over the federal government. So the more that can be done to get ducks in a row before September 30, 2023, the better off 2024 will be. Looking forward to our guest. I'm really excited, Adam, to have our talk with our guests because the topic is one that I hold dear, as you know, evidence-based policymaking. It's it's amazing to me that we haven't had a guest on evidence-based policymaking yet. Well, now's the time. We're young, and we may do a, a string of these guests. We've got Justin Bear with Force Marsh, an evaluation firm. Talk to us about 
Force Marsh, the work he's doing, some advocacy he's recently published. Justin, welcome to the program. Morning, guys. Great to be here. So, Justin, tell us about you and Force Marsh. Absolutely. I lead the program evaluation policy analysis practice at Force Marsh. Force Marsh is a research evaluation, behavioral change, social marketing communications firm. Been around for about 20 years. We support a variety of clients across the federal government. Within my group, we are the type of folks who get out of bed in the morning to help government officials hopefully make more informed decisions about the programs and the policies that they're charged with implementing. So that means we do things like designing, administering large-scale surveys, measuring customer satisfaction with federal services, say the IRS or at Social Security Administration. We do program evaluation near and dear to my heart, which means that we help design and then implement various types of evaluations to kind of measure the effectiveness of, of federal programs, whether they be in the early stage or running for many years. And we also do a lot of work focused on customer experience, user experience, particularly in the in the federal space. So given the the interest, the White House for the uh, in the past couple of years about uh, a more kind of customer centric services for citizens, that's been an area that we've been working with our clients to to address. My my heart is literally fluttering, so I may need some <laughs> smelling salts. Um, <laughs> Why don't you cite some cool results that that you think are worthy of sharing with our uh, listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say kind of across the space. So one of the main areas that we've been working with the past few years is uh, with FEMA. So FEMA is in charge of dispersing billions of dollars each year in the Homeland Security Grants program. So we work with FEMA to help really build evidence about how the recipients of those federal dollars are using the money, uh, how to measure what works, what could be improved. And there's an aspect of it that is both kind of the the actual evaluation measurement side, but there's also the part that is what we call evaluation capacity building. So how do you help both on kind of the federal side as well as grant recipients figure out what's the a way to structure an evaluation? What are the outcomes that are of interest? How do you figure out measures that are linked to those those outcomes of interest? One example, and I would say also at the IRS, we've been working at the IRS for over a decade, measuring customer satisfaction with the various different IRS programs and services that IRS provides. A lot of that is done through surveys that are administered to taxpayers right after they complete, say, a call to the IRS. Uh, But we've also done work kind of more on the qualitative side, trying to dig a little deeper into emerging needs that taxpayers may have. For example, we completed a study about uh, gig economy workers. So for those who work in the gig economy, whether it be restaurant carryout delivery or Uber, Lyft, all sorts of complicated kind of tax implications in terms of what's reported, how do you report, and we work with the IRS to develop some foundational knowledge about how the IRS could support the needs of uh, gig economy workers. Justin, you mentioned the IRS. So Let's jump into it. You wrote a op-ed that ran in NextGov a week or two ago about the IRS's pilot for direct file. We're, we're <laughs> getting in trouble with our overlords for this, but that's the, okay. uh, it's probably true. 
the title is for IRS direct file, let the evidence guide the way. So this fits nicely with what you you and Force Marsh do. Talk, talk a little about the op-ed and that perspective and what you are advocating for for the IRS to do as they roll out that the pilot and then potentially a, a, a service offering from the IRS for a direct file. For those who've been tracking this, IRS released this uh, study that they conducted. Uh, I would say it's kind of a an early feasibility study of direct file, and, and it really focused on gathering attitudes from taxpayers about their interest in direct file, the overall reception that taxpayers might have for this service if IRS were to develop it. And that's that's critical, right? From the perspective of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, right? That's some of that early developmental work that needs to be done. In terms of, of a, a next step, to really understand if direct file is impacting what it is intended or would be intended to hopefully do, and that is improve tax collection, say lower the burden on taxpayers, improve equity in tax administration. Really the the way to accomplish that is one of the favorites in the evaluator's toolbox, which is a randomized controlled trial. And really what that would mean is that the IRS would design and implement an evaluation in which taxpayers would be randomly assigned to either the usual way that they file their taxes. So that could be going and getting your uncle who's an accountant or using whatever kind of commercial tax software is available. That's one group. The other group is assigned to using direct file, right? And then the IRS measures the way that people complete their taxes in both groups, whether it's kind of the what we would call the business as usual or using direct file. And what that yields is strong causal evidence about the impact of direct file on these outcomes that IRS really cares about. So is it more equitable? Are the tax filings more accurate? All those kinds of, of outcomes. And really, the a randomized controlled trial, is the, this is the perfect instance of it because you have a new policy program that the IRS wants to roll out. This is a, a way to test it and really generate that, that strong evidence about its effectiveness. Just to be clear, this is different than the current, I forget what it's called. I think it's free file. This runs, but that, that's available only to folks whose income is below a certain threshold, which is fairly low. It's also not the type of service that, that IRS is envisioning right now. They're really looking to create their own online software, provide a you know, service where people can go on and like they would on TurboTax or Free Tax USA, or you know, pick your commercial provider. They could do that directly on the IRS website. Exactly. Right. Right. This would this would be the the IRS's version of say some of those commercial products, but with just as robust and as usable. Right. In order for it to be picked up and used by taxpayers, right, it's going to have to be able to compete with those commercial products in terms of usability and all those other kind of features. In order for this to go forward, one of the data points policymakers, IRS managers would have to consider is to what extent is this more effective, more cost effective than those private sector solutions? Is that right? Exactly. That's right. So there are multiple kind of 
angles in which we could look at the effectiveness of direct file, right? There's just the usability aspects of it. There's, is it used by a variety of different types of taxpayers, right? Low income, higher income, folks, lower English proficiency, right? You can look across lots of different important aspects of kind of the, the usability side. But ultimately, if you really want to figure out is this thing, is there is there a causal relationship between people using direct file and more accurate tax filings, more equitable distribution in terms of the follow-up from the IRS? The way to do that, really the only way to do that is through a randomized control trial. You beg a question about randomized control trials. This is a methodology born in medical science, applied largely in my experience in the social services context, but expanding rapidly uh, as a result of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, which of course grew from the Great Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. Robert, um, were you involved in that commission at uh, all? I can't uh, remember. <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, Adam. <laughs> but, there's, but there's controversy in the evaluation community and the government management community writ large about applying this methodology to government programs and putting them at some disadvantage, but it's invariably going to put them in a poor light. Any reaction right. to that controversy? Yeah, and I, I think that's that's certainly a very understandable Understandable and, and reasonable kind of concern that can be raised. The way that I've heard it phrased is there's concern about, say, denial of, of services to, to participants in a randomized control trial. Let's say the Department of Education were to want to roll out a new way of teaching third grade math, right? And there was some evidence that some early foundational evidence that this was really a, uh, an improved way of teaching math to third graders. Well, there could be con some concern that, say, those third graders who were assigned to participate in this, the treatment, as we would call it, right, this new program, would be getting something better than those who were randomly assigned to just the business as usual, right, the usual way of, of, of teaching third grade math. So that, that can be a concern about randomized control trials. I mean, I would say one reason that it just struck me for direct file that it's appealing is this is something that is the IRS is building this thing right now, right? There's the business as usual is the way that we're all going about filing our taxes. And it's really an open question as to whether direct file would be a better or equal way, equal to kind of the, the ways that are already out there in terms of filing taxes. So I don't see that concern, that very valid concern that's been raised, especially in social human services education programs. For this one, um, it just feels like direct file is kind of a, perhaps call it close to a textbook case where a randomized control trial could be implemented in government. Yeah, I feel like we're going to get into the Paperwork Reduction Act in this potential study <laughs> anyway. Like, I feel like you can't oh, get no, around that in Adam. evaluating, right? Can we get too deep in the weeds? Is it conceivable <laughs> on this program? I mean, <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we should I mean, do like a rating uh, level of... <laughs> Of, of difficulty. This is like the triple Lindy of bureaucracies. <laughs> let, me, let me raise it back up then. The number of user hours that are necessary to fill out forms to the IRS governed by the Paperwork Protection Act. But let's move on from that. I thought you can talk about the process that Justin was going to have to go through oh, in order to yes. get approval that's to conduct the evaluation. 
Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely not. I don't even want to go that deep. That's way. That's why. That's why Justin does what he does, and I do what I do because <laughs> he's willing to go through those processes. Justin, I want to talk about trust. So, based on the things I've read about this, what the IRS is trying to do, and in general, just working in government, having people trust the government, particularly in the United States, is pretty difficult, particularly at the federal level, and. Right. I think it's probably not widely known that in other countries, the government prepares your tax return for you. And you just, right. at in many of them, you just log on and check to make sure the information is correct and you click submit. Like I'm, I'm supposing it takes around 15 minutes a year, whereas I know folks have their own experiences, but it's gonna take hours and hours in the United States because the way they set it up. The IRS is not proposing to fill out the forms for folks directly. They're looking to match a commercial provided service. But can you talk a little about trust and that barrier and whether that's gonna be a key aspect of how the IRS decides whether to go forward or not? I mean, obviously you don't know how the IRS is thinking, but for me, that seems to be a hurdle where I think people would be more inclined, I'm not one of these people, but I think the majority of people would be more inclined to trust a private sector company, particularly one they've used before in the past and have had success with, mm -hmm. as opposed to the government. Right. I guess two thoughts on that. I mean, one is, I think in the report that uh, the IRS released uh, a month or so ago, I think started to touch on that in terms of the receptivity and trust that taxpayers may have if the IRS were to launch direct files. So that's kind of providing some of that foundational evidence. And I, I'm not going to try to quote the specific percentage, but it was a very high percentage of taxpayers that the IRS surveyed that expressed interest in direct file. Hmm. I guess the other aspect that I would mention, and I'll just sound like I'm beating the drum here again, which I am, is one of the values of a randomized controlled trial is that it's going to generate the evidence of effectiveness of this. So it is an open question as to whether direct file is equally effective, more effective than the commercial providers, than your local account in terms of accuracy of filings on time, all those, those kinds of outcomes of interest. The evidence that would be generated from this, I think would contribute to building that trust, right? There are strong opinions about whether the IRS should proceed with this, whether this is the role that the IRS should play as part of its mission, entirely valid questions to debate. But as an evaluator, as somebody who believes in empirical foundations that hopefully drive government decision-making, I think implementing a strong evaluation like this would go a long way towards building that foundation to hopefully generate potential trust, right? If if the the results indicate that this is an effective way to proceed. Justin's getting worked up. Um, <laughs> yeah, as worked up as I've is, seen him. So. This is a level of worked up in the evaluation <laughs> community, apparently. I was going to make a joke about controversies in the evaluation community earlier, but I decided not to. So the GovNavigator's intern pulled up the, the stats real quick, Justin. The level of interest among taxpayers for an IRS-provided online free tool, 28% were very interested, 45% were somewhat interested, and then 17% were not very interested, which I find is a very odd phrasing, um, but, that's, that, but that's fine. But we've got close to 75% who are right. somewhat interested. Right. And then the likelihood to switch, too, I think is interesting. 
24% very likely and 44% somewhat likely. So, I mean, at, at least in terms of the initial research that's been done, this looks like a green light to me. Yeah, and so there's there's certainly evidence that there's a good chunk of taxpayers that are intrigued and curious about this. Now let's figure out if this thing that the IRS might build doesn't work. That's that's the next step. So let's take this to a, a broader level, Justin. Following the enactment of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act and each successive administration since George W. Bush has advanced evidence-based policymaking. But I think it's fair to say the Biden administration has really ramped things up, including having just completed the year of evidence for action. And the, the administration, I think, will soon require valuation firms get a special item number, a SIN, should they wish to compete for evaluation work at agencies in the future. Can you reflect on where the evaluation community is in the federal government and what special item number will mean for industry? Yeah, that's uh, something right from the evaluator's perspective. It's it's really encouraging to see this movement. I mean, I guess if I take a step back and I think about the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, which is coming up on, what, five years, most since passage, that was significant in a variety of different ways. One thing that has struck me is that I live in this world in which I love doing evaluations. My colleagues at Forest Marsh, we love designing, building evaluations that are going to help inform policy. But a lot of what agencies were charged to do under the uh, the act, this is entirely new stuff, right? Like in terms of actually figuring out what does it mean to implement this legislation? OMB has provided helpful guidance, but in terms of actually figuring out what does it mean to conduct an implementation evaluation? How do we design performance measures? What counts as strong data? How do we build those systems, right? That's a lot to tackle. And as I see proceeding with this new um, special item number, it would really help agencies identify, say, the pool of firms that have expertise in research and evaluation and collaborating with agencies, with federal government staff to figure out what's the need, how do we translate this need for a particular program or service that an agency is providing, how do we turn that into data, to performance measures, and to uh, something that can be evaluated. So that, that to me, is a really encouraging direction. Great. Well, this has been fantastic. Broadly covering Force Marsh, the work you do, your advocacy of an RCT for direct file, and 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 broadly speaking, where the evaluation community is. We really applaud your work and appreciate your time. Appreciate having me on, guys. You know, I, I will always wake up any time of the day or night to talk about RCTs and evaluation. So uh, always happy to, to chat. That means we'll have you on again. Yeah, that's right. He's 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 reaching for a second appearance already. I love it, Justin. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, that was great. What are you looking forward to this week, Adam? Well, you know, near and dear to my heart is golf and playing golf, and it's colliding with government oversight this week. 
tomorrow there's a HISGAC hearing on the PGA Tour Live Golf merger. And they've got a couple of witnesses scheduled, but uh, there's been a lot of hubbub the last couple of weeks about whether Greg Norman will testify or not, who he's run the Live Golf organization, was bankrolled by Saudi Arabia money. And it's going to be fireworks for all the golf nuts out there tomorrow on Capitol Hill. I mean, I think that's all there really is to cover. I'm actually hostile to this. Golf bores me outside of my workday, and now it's seeping in to my regular work hours. So uh, I'm actually... Worlds are colliding. I'm actually going to be doing something much more exciting, monitoring tomorrow's meeting of the subgroup for program evaluation services, which will be meeting with interested parties on the development of a new special item number as we've discussed, for program evaluation. And if that wasn't enough, the Data Coalition is hosting a members-only discussion on a legislative proposal to streamline grant reporting. Basically, it would require grant-making agencies to designate a senior agency official for grants to carry out these streamlining responsibilities. So not only are these well within the areas of focus of GovNavigators, but there's no life-threatening disclosures that we'll have to make in those forums. You and our friend Justin will be following those two events, and the rest of possibly America will be watching the Live Golf PGA Tour testimony this week. I am not suffering FOMO. (laughs) Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gov Navigator Show, brought to you by Gov Navigators. We sure hope you enjoyed it and learned something in the process. And didn't get seasick. Right, of course. If you want to know more about us and what we're up to, please follow us on social media or visit govnavigators.com. Ahoy! Oh, jeez.